Hello, Compass Bible Church, and welcome to this week's episode of the Compass Equip podcast. And we here at Compass Bible Church exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ by reaching people for Christ, teaching people to be like Christ, and training people to serve Christ. And everything we do here at Compass, including this podcast, is to fulfill a mission of reaching, teaching, and training. And this week we continued our series in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 8 with our series, Jesus is Greater, with this sermon being entitled, Bearing the Weight of Our Sin. And we went through verses 14 through 17. I'll read those for you now. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. The main point of this week's sermon was this, that Jesus' miraculous healings should serve as a poignant reminder of God's promise to permanently deliver us through Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. Really, when we see Matthew's, as he, Matthew as he's laying out his gospel, that all of it is pointing us to Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. And, and here in Matthew 8, as we're summing up everything that we've just learned in the last three or four weeks, Matthew wants us to understand all of this was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said about him taking our illnesses, taking our disease, and, and ultimately as a proof to take our sin and be the substitutionary atonement on the cross on our behalf. And so with that being said, we put this in three different points to help us apply this text to our lives as we understand it being interpreted in Matthew eight fourteen through 17. And point number one is this. We need to rejoice in the efficacious work of Christ. And I just want to look back at verses 14 and 15 to see how we got to that place. Right? 14 and 15. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. So as we're thinking about this in light of point number one, rejoicing in the efficacious work of Christ, what we're saying is there's a problem that no one could solve, and it was the mother-in-law of Peter laying sick with a fever. And she was, and really that idea of laying sick is this idea of being thrown into that. She'd been thrown into the sickbed, and there is no way for her to be out of it. And here we see in verse 15, okay, well, what is Jesus going to do? I mean, and can he do anything? What's the, what is his capacity to do anything? And then it says in verse 15 that he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. So when we think about the efficacious work of Christ, what we're really saying is she was thrown into the sickbed. He simply touches her hand, and the best outcome of all the outcomes that you could think of, right? I mean, if you think about what are the, what are the outcomes that I'm looking for here? You know, if I'm Peter's mother-in-law or Peter or one of the disciples, I'm thinking, man, it would just be great if I knew she wasn't going to die. Or I'd, it'd be great if she could just, you know, start, he could do something and she could get better over time. Or I mean, the, the best possible outcome happened. He touched her hand, the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. You can't get any better than that when it comes to the situation they found themselves in, which is exactly that point of the efficacious work of Christ. He accomplished what he set out to do. And there wasn't a limitation, right? It wasn't that uh, he doesn't have enough power to get her to actually completely healing. Uh, he he kind of got her feeling better, but she still needs to rest and get energy. It's like, no, no, she was completely energized and fueled up and ready to go when just a couple of seconds later, she was thrown into her sickbed. 
And so for us as Christians, we need to rejoice in the efficacious work of Christ because if he could do that, and then he said that he died for our sins and he was he died on the cross and then he said it is finished, then I'm going to say, well, it works. He, he set out and, and accomplished that which he set out to do. And I can rejoice in that because 14 and 15 are pointing to that exact, that exact concept of if he did it, he did it to a completion and it worked and it fulfilled its, it filled its desired outcome. It's important for you and I to understand as Christians because it's such an important part of our, our Christian faith to rejoice in this fact that we don't have to wonder if Christ lacked anything in his death on our behalf, if there's anything left for us to do. Uh, the question is, nothing. there's nothing left for us to do in our state of justification before God because of the efficacious work of Christ. Now, do we have a part to play in our life as we're, we're living for the Lord and we have work to do that he has set before us? Yeah, absolutely all those things. But none of those things need to add to the efficacious work of Christ on the cross to complete our salvation, which is a wonderful part of the Christian faith. And we have, what do we do? We rejoice. We're just excited the fact that we get to be a part of this kingdom. And so we're going to put our heads down and we're going to, we're going to work hard for the Lord, knowing that all the things that we're doing uh, is going to be brought to completion. Uh, and at the end of the day, none of that stuff is necessary for me to receive salvation because that's already been sealed for me and done by Christ. Point number two, to trust in the far reaching power of Christ's atonement. And I want you to see how we get that from the text. In the text in verses 14 and 15, what you see is a focus in on an individual. And before that, we even saw focusing in on the individual, the centurion and the sick servant. And before that, we saw uh, the zoomed in portrait of the leper. And so we see Matthew moving from one individual to another individual to another individual. And he does this quite a bit in scripture as he goes from one story to another and to another. And then he'll sum it up with a summary statement or a summary story and then a fulfillment passage. And we see it again here because what Matthew is desiring the reader to understand from this text is it worked for this person, it worked for this person, it worked for this person, and then he's going to sum it up by saying that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast them out with a word, and he healed all who were sick. So what he's doing is he's, he's showing you the far-reaching power of Christ's authority. He's showing you it's not just for that individual. that It's a far-reaching. It's much broader than that. Like it's, he has the capacity and the efficacy to do far more than just, you know, Peter's mother-in-law or the centurion's servant or the leper. It's, it's efficacious far greater. It's, its reach is far greater than that. And, of course, that brings us to this idea of atonement, that, that when we think about the atonement of Christ, we think of the fact that it wasn't just for Israel. We think about the atonement of Christ— uh, it, it is a, a reality that Christ's atonement is going to reach to uh, people of all nations, people from every tongue, every nation, every language, every tongue. All. And so we recognize that, wow, it's far-reaching in its ability to save. It's not, you know, no one can say, well, you know, Christianity is good for you and not for me because it can't do that work in me. It's like, no, no, no. There's a much far further-reaching power in the atonement of Christ than any kind of excuse will be able to mitigate or diminish. And then if you think about its individual application to you, when you trust in the far-reaching power of Christ's atonement, you have to ask, is the atonement of Christ just good enough to save you and not change you? Because I think that's a big concern that I see in this age, is many people will argue that, yeah, 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 the Christ's atonement is enough to save me and uh, before God that, that I'm justified and saved. But yet, when you really push people, 
to begin thinking about the rest of the implications of Christ's atonement where he promises to sanctify us. Well, I just, I'm not, I struggle, I have all these problems, which is true, we do, don't we? Uh, but this idea that you you can't, through the power of Christ and the work of His Holy Spirit, overcome those, or that you're unwilling to put to death the sin in your life and put on the righteousness of Christ, this idea that you won't participate with the Holy Spirit in your sanctification uh, really says a lot more about what you really believe about the far-reaching power of Christ's atonement, because what you really believe is, well, I think He can do this, but not this. I think this can do, He can do this, but not that. And we're just going to say, when you when you trust in the far-reaching power of Christ's atonement, you trust in Christ not only for your salvation, but for your sanctification and, as you look forward to, your glorification. And I also think it's a bit backwards as you think about it, because many of us want to say, well, yeah, I think Christ's atonement can, can fix the root problem, but I don't think it can fix the symptomatic things. We're going to say, no, if, if Christ can fix the root problem of sin, then he can transform your life when it comes to the uh, symptomatic thing, since the the, the symptomatic issues when it comes to your sin, right? Oh, you know, I, I don't watch my mouth as much as I should. I don't exercise self-control. It's like, well, those are symptoms of the root problem of sin. Did Christ come to deal with your sin? Absolutely. Then Christ came to deal with the symptoms of those things too. And if he's effective enough to save you, he's effective enough in the far-reaching power of his atonement to sanctify you and ultimately to bring us to himself in glorification uh, at his return. And so we, we can't miss that when we think about the ability for Christ to atone uh, for our sin and to move us in our life towards sanctification as we await glorification. And point number three, to focus on the eternal redemptive purpose of Christ's miracles. And I, again, this comes right from the text there. We see all of these healing scenes and we see him summarizing it all up in verse 16. And, you know, He's being superintended over by the Holy Spirit, so this is exactly what God wants him to say. But for argument purpose, we can say, well, Matthew could have said whatever he wanted here. Of course, he can't, but for argument's sake, he could have said whatever he wanted right here. He, he could have said this was to fulfill the fact that Christ came to make all of our lives last longer here on earth before we die. Or this was to show that Christ thinks that this is a more important reality than anything else we can imagine, that he wants everybody to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. But he doesn't. I mean, he really brings this to the exact point that we're making here, is all of these miracles were to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases, which is exactly what all this was about, that he came to take that which was ours and he came in a substitutionary place to take it on our behalf. And we know that because when we look at the quotation of Isaiah, it, you see it there coming from Isaiah uh, 53, verse 4, starting there in verse 4. But that whole text, uh, in that whole chapter of uh, Isaiah chapter 3, shows us that we're talking about the substitutionary uh, life of the suffering servant on behalf of sinful people. And so we're not just talking about miraculous things happen, although that is a sign of the messianic uh, fulfillment of the Messiah, but we're saying something far greater than that. He's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. He was smitten by God. He, he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. And so I, I love even the way that Matthew did this, which, you know, if you read your Old Testament in verse 4 of Isaiah 53, and then you read the text in verse 17, you, you might find that, oh, these aren't exactly the same. And there, there's reason for that. Uh, and we'll get to in a moment in one of the questions that was asked, 
But really what, what Matthew is saying here is understand that the purpose and the focus of all of this was not the miracle itself, but it was the eternal redemptive purpose of Christ's miracles to prove that he could take our sins and bear them on the cross, that he was sufficient to save us from our sins. I hope as you work on your application questions this week, you spend a lot of time thinking not only why is this important, but how and what am I going to do in my life because of the importance of this text and how I'm going to apply it to my life. Think about particulars. Don't don't be in the generalities. Think about the particulars. Like you say, okay, well, today I need to trust more in uh, persevering in my faith. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, I'm going to uh, I'm going to spend more time in God's word. Okay. Well, how are you going to do that? You see, keep digging, right? How, you're going to spend more time in the word of God. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, I'm going to wake up at six o'clock every day. I'm going to go into my kitchen. I'm going to turn on the coffee pot. I'm going to make me some coffee, and I'm going to sit there. And I'm going to put a timer for thirty minutes to make sure I have uninterrupted time, and I'm going to open up systematically through our daily Bible reading, and I'm going to read for thirty minutes every day. And I'm going to end it praying. I'm thinking, wow. That was an application, right? You see, that's the difference between this broad application that doesn't lead to much and the particulars that lead us to actionable things in our faith that we can make sure that we're applying to our very lives. You also have at the bottom of your note sheet the Bible study question of the week, which is found there at the bottom of your worksheet, and it is Philippians 1, 9 and through 11 and Genesis 50, 19 through 21, And it says this, Paul states that his imprisonment, and of course all of this is tied to our men's and women's Bible study uh, once a month, and this is the ability for you guys to take your men's and women's Bible study with you throughout the week. And it says Paul states that his imprisonment, as terrible as it was, was good for the gospel. In Genesis 50, Joseph said God used his brother's evil deeds for good. How does Paul and Joseph's understanding of God's sovereignty help you understand how God uses evil for his good purpose? How does this understanding help you trust that God is working out his good plan no matter your circumstances? How can we faithfully and tactfully encourage one another with the truth of God's sovereignty while experiencing suffering? Well, this is the, uh, at least systematically as we think about theology, the idea of theodicy, right? The, the existence of God as it relates to pain and suffering. Well, because you hear this all the time. Well, if God is good, then why is there suffering in the world? Well, this is a really great exegetical study question to help you start working through that and working through the realities of suffering in the world and the existence of God. So I hope you take some time in your in your study this week to be working on the Bible study question of the week. At this time in our podcast, we like to take your questions and do our best to answer them as clearly and as most as helpfully as we can. Uh, and so I'm going to try to do that now with a couple of these questions you guys asked, which, uh, you know, I, I think some good, some good thoughts and some good questions here. So I'll read, the, I'll read this one for you. In Isaiah 53, 4, it says, He surely has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This does not appear to refer to sickness and disease, as said in Matthew. Why is there such a difference? Did translators get it wrong? Is it the difference between Hebrew and Greek? Because the Hebrew is in the Old Testament, the Greeks in the New Testament. And should the New Testament translators not have made, should have made sure these references correlated? Well, that's a really good question. And it is often, when you look at this, you're like, okay, why is it like this? If I've, I've paid close attention, I'm saying, why are these a little bit different? Well, different commentators will, will have uh, some, a bit of a varying uh, reasons for this. Uh, 
But really, when you think about it, particularly if you think about the Old Testament, you have the, the Masoretic text, which is the old Hebrew uh, Hebrew version of this, and then you have the LXX, which the LXX was called the Septuagint, uh, with Sept, which means the 70 Jewish scholars who went and put this, uh, translated this in from the Hebrew into the Greek, because the Greek was the common language of that day. And as they did this, uh, this Bible, the LXX, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was the Bible of the day of Jesus and the disciples. And so a lot of when you see translations from, uh, or when you see quotations in the New Testament, they're often correlated directly from the LXX or the Septuagint. But here in this case, it's a little bit different. And uh, really, I mean, a lot of commentators will say that Matthew actually reflects the meaning of the original Hebrew better than the LXX translation. Uh, But really, uh, what we have to understand here is what Matthew is doing is he's taking the context and the concept of all of Isaiah 53 and bringing it into its wider full implications in the New Testament. And so the best way that I can explain it to you in a way that's helpful uh, is this, that uh, there's this parallelism right, that, that you see in the Old Testament and, and in Isaiah 53 and in Matthew 8 that says this, yeah, you're right. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But in Matthew, it says he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And so uh, what we see here, though, if you go back to Isaiah 53, what is all of 53 discussing? The ability and capacity for the suffering servant, servant to take our sins upon himself, for the suffering servant to be pierced for our transgression, for the suffering servant to take on the wrath of God in our place, right? I mean, that's, that's what that whole text is saying. And, and one of the messianic promises is, is part of that is going to be this capacity for this Messiah to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. And so all Matthew's doing is a summarizing that in a way that's really clear. How did he do that? Well, here's an example. When you look in Matthew eight seventeen, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Well, that is a, that is a, that is a fulfillment and a promise of the messianic age that Christ will come. The Christ, the Messiah, will come and do those things. And he did that here. And Matthew is saying, hey, but, but blow this out into the broader implications, which is why I love that he quotes Isaiah here, because Isaiah wasn't simply that the suffering servant came to take our griefs and our sorrows. He came as a substitutionary atone, atoning sacrifice for us that God sent and God was pleased to uh, crush the son and put him to grief. And because of him, right, because of his sacrifice, the many would be accounted righteous. And I love because what Matthew has done here, when you pay attention to saying, that's what Matthew is saying here. Christ came and his ability to take our illnesses and our disease, which was his ability to bear our griefs and our sorrow, really finds his ultimate fulfilling in the fact that he was a substitute for our sin. And as Matthew is looking here, he's saying, the proof of these healings are the proof that this is the Messiah who's come to be the propitiation for our sins or the substitute for our sins. So really, it actually is a wonderful uh, use of this passage in Isaiah by Matthew because Matthew is drawing the broader implications of this is the Christ who came to die on our behalf. And these healings are just the taste, the foretaste of what Christ is really here to do, which you see again in Matthew 9, uh, 1 through uh what is it? Matthew here, uh, Matthew 9, 1 through 7. 
when he gets into the boat and he says, your sins are forgiven. But in proving that the sins were forgiven, he healed the, uh, he healed the paralytic. Why? Because the point of the healings were that he could forgive sins. He could take your place and uh, be the propitiation. He could take on the wrath of God and, and bestow favor upon you because him taking your place. And so I think it's a wonderful use. Actually, if you really look at the context, Matthew did a really good job utilizing uh, that text in Isaiah as a proof of how Jesus was the Messiah. So good question. I think it's a really good question. And it is hard. I mean, it took me a while as I was studying that to at least draw that distinction of uh, and coming to that real realization and that conclusion that Matthew did a masterful job. I mean, you could tell the Holy Spirit was leading him to that because it's actually a perfect way to take and weave those two texts in together. All right, next question here. In the sermon, we looked at Romans 8.30, which refers to predestination. Question two in the application sheet refers to perseverance in the faith. What is the nece- What is the necessity for perseverance of those who are or aren't predestined? For those who are predestined, would perseverance not come naturally by God's decree? All right, my little reformer here. Okay, uh, the best way to think about this, and you can see it in a lot of scripture, you know, and I'll read question number two for you. Question number two says, read John 19, 28 through 30 and Philippians 3, 20 through 21. It says, how does the efficacy of Christ's work on the cross give you hope and encouragement to persevere in your faith? And, uh, you know, when, when your question here is saying, hey, uh, what is the necessity of persevering for those? And we can say you say who are and who aren't. I mean, let's talk about for those who are. Well, the necessity of those who are saved to persevere in their faith is of salvific importance. I mean, you see, I can I can pull up multiple scriptures for you, right? Uh, Hebrews 3.14, for if we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. Well, what is that? Perseverance. 1 Timothy 2.15 uh, talks about even women and childbearing and what we see from that promise of Genesis 3.15. Uh, she'll be saved through childbearing, but if they continue in the faith, Acts fourteen twenty two, they're strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them, or there it is right there, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Or here's another one, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And so I think it's, it's just really a biblical position to say we should encourage people to persevere in the faith. And, and then the question is, you know, wouldn't those who are, are saved or going to be saved, wouldn't they persevere? Wouldn't that become naturally by God's decree? And we're going to say, yeah, there's a reality that we see in the Bible called these warning passages. And these warning passages tell us things like, well, you need to persevere because if you don't, then you won't be saved. And, and really, the, the best way to think about those warning passages is they're, they're warning you, right? If you do not persevere, then it just shows that you were never you were never one of God's chosen people, that you were not of God's elect, that you were not of God's nation, his people, right? His his called out people. And so there I don't there is no problem, right? There is no uh discrepancy in calling people to perseverance because that's what the Bible calls us to do. Call people to persevere, call people to stay steadfast in their confidence and firm to the end because that person's perseverance is proof of the fact that they are they're saved. They've persevered. And I see it here in Hebrews and Timothy and Acts and Corinthians that it is a very apostolic command uh, and a biblical command to call people to persevere in their faith 
Uh, the same way I would say the, you need to be in, encouraged and exhorted to turn away from sin and pursue righteousness. And you could say the same thing here. Wouldn't that, you know, your question, wouldn't that come naturally by God's decree that, that, that since you've been made new in Christ that you're going to do those things? Yeah, but interestingly, Scripture never tells us to think about it that way. It, in Scripture, it tells us always to put off the old, put on the new. Uh, lay aside every sin that easily clings to you and put on Christ and run the race. I mean, so these, these commands are, are meant to be encouragements for the Christian to say exactly that, that, that you are God's child and you, you will persevere, so persevere. You see how encouraging that was? In, in the same way, you were not made for unrighteousness. You've been made in Christ unto righteousness, so be righteous. See, how, that's an encouraging exhortation from Scripture. And I guess that final part of your question is, what, what about those who aren't predestined? I guess that's what you say, right? Is the necessary for what is the necessity for perseverance of those who aren't predestined? I mean, in the best way to say that, are those who aren't saved. Well, they're not going to persevere. They're not going to persevere in their faith because they're not Christians. They're not saved. But for those who are saved, would perseverance not come naturally? I mean, I, I trust that God would be, as He's leading you in the Holy Spirit, would would produce in you a faithfulness unto Himself that still in our world that we live in, in our life, would say, you know, I needed that encouragement. I mean, that's why we come together in the preaching of God's Word often, to receive encouragement, to receive exhortation. To do what? To persevere. I mean, what else do we receive encouragement and exhortation for but to persevere in our faith? The same thing you see the biblical writers doing right here is to say, be steadfast, be immovable, continue in the faith. You see it again in Colossians 1. Uh, 21 through 23. You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. What, are the, what is he calling them to? Perseverance. And I mean, I guess if you put that question in there, you could you could ask, well, why, are, why is the Bible talking about perseverance for those uh, to whom perseverance should just come naturally by God's decree? Well, because that would just not be taking the Bible at face value and recognizing that the Bible calls us to encourage and exhort people to continue in the faith for perseverance, trusting and knowing that God is going to produce this, and it is actually such a wonderful encouragement and exhortation of our faith as we continue in the faith, as we're being encouraged by the church and one another and God's Word. All right, wonderful job with those application questions and those the Q&A segment. As always, I want to encourage you Submit your questions uh, of the sermons, and I'll do my best, and I'll do my best. Sometimes I'm not going to answer your question the way that sometimes I'd hope to. If I were just smarter, maybe a little better looking, I could probably answer some of these questions uh, more sufficiently at times. But I'm going to do my best to make sure I answer these questions in a way that would be helpful and encouraging uh, for you. With that being said, I'd like to go to some of our announcements. The big announcements are, are simply this. D-Now is coming up. D-Now starts on February the 15th. And goes through the 18th. And registration is open, but I do believe prices are going up. So make sure if you haven't already, you have students from 6th grade to 12th grade, go ahead and sign them up now for their D now entitled Ambitious Faith, where you'll be looking at Hebrews 11 and 12 and learn how to have in Christ an ambitious faith, doing great things for the Lord as he's called us to do. Uh, Secondly, we have our men's Bible study coming up just next Saturday, 9 o'clock. We'll meet here uh, at our church, and we'll we'll eat breakfast, sit under the teaching of God's word, and then we'll break off into our life group 
as men. I'm so encouraged by this every month when we do it, and I invite you men to join us as we take part of that. And if you're listening to this and you don't have a life group and you're a man, come anyway. we got plenty of space for you. We'd love for you to be a part of this. And then lastly, we have our Next Steps project uh, well on its way, and we're raising some, we're raising a great amount of money. We have plans coming together, and as a matter of fact, I have a big announcement, the Lord willing, that I'll share with you guys next Sunday. So be praying, and if you haven't been giving or praying, I would consider you to— I'd ask you to consider your prayer and your giving to be uh, partnering with our church to see God uh, make this uh, uh, make this plan come to fruition that we can multiply our ministry space and do more effective discipleship here at our church through this project. So be praying. A couple things to be praying for is uh, be praying for our relationship with the city and the permitting process. Be praying for the finances to come in. Uh, and just for a, a transition and a process that isn't without its warts and wrinkles, every building project is, but that we'd be able to overcome those and have our own perseverance in this project uh, to get it to its completion so that we can maximize and expand the ministry space we have here at our church. All right, church, so, so thankful for you. Do look forward to seeing how your life groups go this way this week, praying for your time in God's Word as you study and prepare for your life group this week. And I look forward to joining you again next Sunday.